good afternoon, everyone, uh, to those in Silicon Valley or elsewhere in California or the West Coast. Uh, good evening to those on the East Coast of the U.S. or North America. And good morning to those uh, hearty souls in Taipei or elsewhere in Asia who are joining us bright and early. I am uh, Karis Templeman. I am the program manager of the project on Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific region at the Hoover Institution um, and a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, this is uh, our regular speaker series for that project uh, where we explore issues related to Taiwan's security, economy, and uh, political system. Um, and uh, it's my pleasure today to introduce somebody who's gonna talk about something a little different, uh, something that has not been in the news as much related to Taiwan, and that is Taiwan's uh, economy and Taiwan's uh, ability to innovate and its ties uh, with other uh, countries in the region. Um, that person is Evan A. Feigenbaum. He is the Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, he was also the 2019-20 James R. Schlesinger Distinguished Professor at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, where he is also now a practitioner senior fellow. Uh, initially an academic with a PhD in Chinese politics from drumroll Stanford University, where he studied under John Lewis. Uh, welcome back virtually. Unfortunately, we can't welcome him back in person yet, but I hope to do that again Hope, hope we can do that soon. Um, uh, after he left Stanford, his career has been uh, quite expansive. He's uh, served in government. Uh, he's worked in the think tank world, the private sector, and uh, specialized in three different regions of Asia. Um, so he's got quite a broad uh, array of experiences uh, that he can draw on. Uh, during the George W. Bush administration, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for South Asia. Uh, he was uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State then for Central Asia, and he was also a member of the SOS's policy planning staff responsible for East Asia and the Pacific. Uh, you know, I haven't even mentioned Taiwan yet there in all of that background, uh, but he is also, uh, and the reason he is here today is that he's also done some uh, innovative work looking at Taiwan's economy. Uh, and I would be remiss if I did not direct the audience to a recent report that came out uh, entitled Ensuring Taiwan's Innovation Future that was published uh, with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, I believe in January. Uh, and so much of his talk today is gonna draw on that work uh, in that piece. Um, I would like to flag also an even more recent piece he wrote with Barbara Weissel, uh, entitled Deepening the U.S.-Taiwan Economic Partnership. Uh, that advocates for some interim steps the United States and Taiwan could take uh, in place of the development of a bilateral uh, trade agreement or investment agreement. Um, so uh, without further ado, I'm gonna turn the floor over to Evan um, and uh, we'll uh, give Evan about a uh, half hour to talk. Uh, and then one more procedural note, um, I should mention, uh, there is a box at the bottom of your screen that says Q&A. For the audience, we will have a significant amount of time after uh, Dr. Feigenbaum is done speaking uh, to pose questions. And so I invite you to enter your questions into that box. I can't promise we'll get to it, 
but I do encourage you to, to raise whatever questions you're interested in hearing him address. All right, without further ado then, I turn the floor over to you. Great, well, thanks, thanks everyone. And good afternoon from Chicago, actually not Washington. I've been parked here for the pandemic. Uh, away from DC, but happily vaccinated, as I was just telling Karis and Larry Diamond at long last. So hopefully looking forward to seeing you all in person. Now, Karis mentioned this in passing, but uh, I'm actually a Stanford PhD. So I spent uh, much of the 1990s wandering around campus, including the halls of the Hoover Institution and the Chinese uh, language stacks at the Hoover Library. I've got lots of old friends at Hoover, uh, Larry Diamond, uh, Mike McFall, Lanny Chen, your director, Condi Rice, is a longtime mentor, my former boss. Uh, I was actually Condi's teaching assistant at Stanford in, I think, 1992, so almost 30 years ago. I just dated myself for an undergraduate class on the role of the military in politics, and she was on my doctoral committee. So anyway, it's good to be back. It's always good to be on the farm. I wish I was there for real, uh, but it's nice to do it virtually, and I look forward to seeing you in a post-pandemic post environment. All right, um, let me start by noting a basic truth, and that is that Taiwan is coming out of the pandemic better than most of the world's other top 25 industrial economies. You will know this, but Taiwan grew a little over 3% in 2020, which was not just an upside surprise, but actually made it uh, pretty much the fastest growing economy in industrial Asia last year. And that happened on the back of exports and particularly strong demand for ICT and you know, technology products, but also on the back of Taiwan's outstanding management and mitigation strategies for the COVID-19 outbreak. And so especially for us Americans, since I was just mentioning that I'm vaccinated, uh, that particular success should, in my view, validate something that we appear sometimes over the last year or two have forgotten, even though we're now vaccinating our way out of this thing, um, which is that in a pandemic, good public health policy also happens to be good economic policy. The reason I'm telling you that is that the central ingredients of Taiwan's success against COVID, in my view, reflect pretty much the same recipe that delivered decades of steady economic growth to Taiwan. First, efficient coordination, across the public and private sectors. And then second, innovative development of advanced technology. But, and this is the headline, I, I, I don't want us to be blinded by the short-term growth picture and the upside of 2020, because Taiwan's structural challenges, especially as an economy that can and should be powered by innovation are in my view, substantial and growing. And that in turn raises the bar for policymakers in Taiwan, but also for those of us in the United States who care about Taiwan's long-term economic security. And so that's what I'm gonna talk about because we hear a lot about Taiwan's so-called economic security, but not nearly so much about how to achieve it. And just so I define my terms for you at the outset as clearly as possible, to me, the idea of economic security essentially has two components. First, it means having the right economy, not just for right now, but the right economy to compete 10 to 20 years from now. And then second, therefore, to be both innovative 
and adaptive because of the ever-present reality of both economic and technological change, which can assault your present-day economic and growth model, no matter how successful it may have been in the past. And so the good news for Taiwan is that it has an economy that's been built on innovation since at least the 1970s. But the bad news, in my humble opinion, is that technology and industry are changing much more rapidly than Taiwan is keeping sufficient pace. And so to illustrate that for you, I'm gonna divide this basically into two parts. First, I wanna ask just how innovative is Taiwan's economy anyway, as we look not just, as I said, to the right now, but to the future and are the ingredients of a long-term disruptive innovation ecosystem in place, given what we know about how technology and industry are evolving. And then second, what should the US-Taiwan economic agenda look like? And here I'll go beyond innovation and technology a little bit and just turn to a broader set of opportunities that I think exist for the Biden and Tsai Ing-wen administrations in the coming months. Now, as Kara said, last year, I published a big report at the Carnegie Endowment called Assuring Taiwan's Innovation Future. It's one of a series of studies I actually did. I did one on energy. There's one on technical standards and so on, but it spoke to some of the challenges that I just referenced for you. And I wanna build off that by briefly addressing some of the challenges it pointed to. First, what made Taiwan's innovation ecosystem so successful? And what are the risks that have now arisen in recent years? Then I wanna flag a few of the specific challenges that I view as the most acute, and then I'll toss out a few modest ideas for how international innovation partnerships, especially with the United States, could help to assure Taiwan's innovation future. And then, as I said, I'll come back to the US-Taiwan before I shut up and conclude. All right, so first on the legacy, um, many of you, especially those of you in Taiwan will know this already, but Taiwan's ecosystem had essentially three distinctive advantages and they functioned a little bit like three legs of a stool. Um, first, there was government competition policy, which in Taiwan's case really meant a more flexible and decentralized ecosystem than was the case, frankly, in Japan and South Korea, whose industrial policies were much more centralized. Um, Taiwan didn't necessarily call its approach industrial policy, but this was essentially the approach that came to be associated with KT Lee, um, with the foundation of institutions like ITRI, the Industrial Technology Research Institute, and the establishment of an indigenous venture capital industry and some of the champion companies that we all know about today that are central to the TIEX, but are also central global players as well. Now, second, beyond just government competition policy, you had what I would call aggressive internationalization and especially the unique links between Taiwan, and since this is Stanford University after all, Silicon Valley, that led to what Annalise Saxanian across the bay at UC Berkeley has called brain circulation. Um, essentially what that means is that so many people from Taiwan came to Silicon Valley, but then subsequently went back to Taiwan to establish the ecosystem there, but continued to maintain very strong linkages both to the Valley and to other innovation ecosystems in the United States and around the world. And then third, you had the leveraging, not just of quality and cost, but of the creation of an indigenous capability in Taiwan to innovate independently. And this was manifest, as I said, especially in the unique model of ChipFab that was pioneered by TSMC and then by others. 
But I think, and I want to be very frank about this, that Taiwan now faces some accumulating risks to this very successful model. And I'd highlight three for you. The first is a persistent lack of internationalization in Taiwan's startup scene beyond some of the world-class legacy sectors. And the data on this over the last decade or more has been pretty sobering. For example, in some surveys, less than 1% of R&D in Taiwan is funded by foreign sources. And more than 70% of startup revenue, according to a survey done by PwC, the consultancy just a few years ago came from the Taiwan domestic market as recently as 2018, so just a few years ago. So it's imperative therefore to restore and nurture some of these once aggressive international linkages from Taiwan to overseas. Now the second risk beyond the lack of internationalization is technological change because of the transition around the world from hardware, which is Taiwan's historical comparative advantage, to software, as well as the integration of hardware and software together. And these things really define some of the core emerging technology industries, including places where mainland Chinese companies like uh, DJI and drones have become the leading global uh, market segment leaders. And then third, obviously, there are political challenges from Beijing that are well known to all of you. One is the constricting of Taiwan's international space, which has downward effects on supply chain partnerships and investment opportunities. But another is the fostering by mainland China of its own industrial base, which has led, to be frank, to the poaching of engineering talent from Taiwan to the mainland, something that the government in Taiwan is now trying to arrest. And then finally, there's the way in which multinationals and Silicon Valley firms have transitioned from partnerships in Taiwan to partnerships in mainland China, including with the rather unique hardware ecosystem that has emerged in Shenzhen, in southern China, where if you want to uh, basically uh, innovate, tweak, and turn a hardware product around on a very short production cycle, there's no ecosystem really quite like that. So in a nutshell, Taiwan's innovation ecosystem faces some new risks and the government has done the right thing there by trying to foster, for example, a five plus two innovative industries plan that targets a few sectors. There's a so-called Asian Silicon Valley project to address some of these risks. And then you have some interesting private sector efforts to foster a new ecosystem, such as uh, one called the Taiwan Startup Stadium. There are a few of these other ideas and initiatives. But ultimately, and building on those initiatives, the solution, it seems to me, is twofold. First, to get back to basics, including by fostering a next generation of engineering talent, especially in emerging fields like data science and computer science, not just legacy fields like electrical engineering and mechanical engineering. And then second, to re-energize international partnerships in new fields and new sectors. So that then brings me to the second bite on innovation and technology. I wanna highlight for you five specific challenges. And since the time is short, I'm not gonna to dig too deeply into these, but you can read the Carnegie report that Karis mentioned if you're interested in looking at some of the data because I have some data and some tables in there. Um, but there are five major issues that I think pose the most acute challenges to Taiwan's innovation future. The first is to vastly expand and above all, refocus the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics or STEM talent 
and human capital base. Taiwan does face some obstacles in its effort to assure a robust and growing STEM talent pool. And there's a lot of international competition to do that, including from mainland China. And second, there's the problem of scale because it can be difficult to scale industries and business models because Taiwan is a relatively small domestic market at 23 million. I convened a series of workshops with major companies in Taiwan uh, and some international companies, including some from the Valley. And this was a persistent theme that came up in some of these roundtables. Why does Taiwan not have sufficient number of platform companies? Why don't you see more international presence for Taiwan companies except some of these champion firms? Part of it is the problem of scale. So third, then the challenge is to move beyond hardware, as I said, and bluntly put, Taiwan has yet to transition sufficiently from hardware dominant ecosystem to a greater emphasis, not just as I said on software, but especially on hardware software integration. Now that's really becoming the key to some industries, including the ones that China, mainland China is increasingly targeting. So one example, as I said, is drone technology because drones obviously begin with high quality hardware, but they've advanced rapidly on the basis, not just of progressive hardware tweaks, but the application of advanced software like AI algorithms to the hardware. So in that market segment, the ability to advance and adapt these AI technologies has defined some of the scope and outcomes of the competition. So that is why, for example, the global market leader in drones for aerial photography and videography is a Chinese firm, DJI, DJI, because of its advantages, first in flexible hardware manufacturing, but then second, because DJI now seeks to make a transition uh, to making computer vision a new basis for growth. And that's yielded partnerships, including a famous partnership between DJI and Microsoft that uses edge computing to analyze data closer to its source, namely the sensors and the computers that fly aboard the drone. Now, Taiwan has a pretty unique opening in my view because of the growing aversion in some economies, including the United States to Chinese origin, AI and software technologies. So Taiwan could potentially substitute for products designed or made in China, including in Shenzhen, in areas like drones or intelligent robotics and other areas. Okay, so that's the third. Then the fourth challenge is to assure that more of the value added stays in Taiwan itself. If you look at the data, too little of the value added within technology related supply chains resides inside Taiwan. And then fifth, there's a need for policy enhancements. Political leaders and the bureaucracy in Taiwan have yet, in my view, to fully adapt government technology and education policies to enhance competitiveness in some of these newer industries. Now, before I move on to US-Taiwan, I do wanna put particular emphasis on the first of these challenges which as you recall is the STEM talent base and talent pool. Now, obviously Taiwan, like many places needs improvements to general STEM education, but it also needs innovators with specialized skills in math, statistics, computer science and data science, because these are the skills that lie at the heart of some of the emerging fields that we were just talking about, machine learning, cybersecurity, AI and so on. And Taiwan faces gaps and some shortfalls across the board in those areas. I'll just give you a little bite at some of the data. From 2007 to 2014, the number of science and engineering first university degrees in Taiwan declined by nearly 10,000. 
from 30, from, sorry, from 92,167 to 83,394. And that happened even though the total number of engineering graduates rose compared to say the 1990s. So within that talent pool, the number of computer scientists and specialists in math, statistics, and the physical and biological sciences has simply not expanded in a sufficient way. And so that means that at a time when Taiwan is facing rapid technological change, it is still concentrating the talent pool that it does produce into legacy fields connected to semiconductor design like electrical engineering. So Taiwan has underinvested in emerging areas like computer and data sciences. And there are plenty of smaller economies around the world that have used these kinds of strategic investments to build niche strengths with global impact. One example is Israel, which identified science and computer science as strategic priorities decades ago. It has granted first pick among all new recruits to tech-focused units of the military and intelligence services. And then Israel has established programs like the so-called Talpiot program, which assigns the top 1% of military recruits to technology and cybersecurity jobs. And that's enabled Israel to build a niche capability of global import on cyber. All right, now let me go to my third point, which is international partnerships. A related challenge is that the number of Taiwan students going to the United States has actually trended downward for the last 20 years uh, at almost every educational level. And in the last year or two, happily, this seems to be turning around, but the longer term trend line has not been good over a couple of decades. And more of those students, especially those with the most experience like PhDs have been choosing to stay in the United States, not to go home to Taiwan. Uh, roughly 65% of Taiwan origin US educated PhDs in the science and engineering subjects plan to stay in the United States in surveys that were conducted between 2004 and 2007, which is already a pretty high number. But by 2012 to 2015, so a decade later, that number had risen to nearly 75%, which meant that three out of every four Taiwan PhDs in the United States were actually staying here in the US. And if you go back to what I said earlier about brain circulation in the 1970s, you can see why that's not a good trend by extrapolation. Now, the report I mentioned earlier that I wrote at Carnegie had a lot of very detailed recommendations around this, especially for Taiwan and the United States, but also for the global setting. And I'll highlight just a few before I move on to the US and Taiwan, because these are some forward-looking ways to maybe build the talent pipeline. First, Taiwan could ease work visa and market entry policies. This would encourage, for example, global startups and not just the big players like Google and Microsoft to set up shop in Taiwan. Second, um, I've argued that Taiwan ought to support industry-led mentorship programs. For example, Wistron, which is an ICT ODM with some 80,000 global employees, has promoted a program to bring foreign artificial intelligence experts to serve as mentors in residence in Taiwan. AI mentoring programs could be scaled through public-private partnerships and then replicated in other areas like quantum computing or cybersecurity or machine learning or biotechnology. Third, um, Taiwan could expand the so-called G Asia Pass scheme. If you're not familiar with this, this is a digital entrepreneur card that gives essentially equal national treatment to like-minded economies. 
So that would promote freer talent flow among technology-focused entrepreneurs in Asia in particular. Fourth, I've argued that the United States and Taiwan ought to establish a Trans-Pacific Advisory Panel encompassing domestic technology leaders in Taiwan, representative of US firms doing R&D in Taiwan, the venture capital industries on both sides of the Pacific, and also university leaders from places like Stanford, uh, but other universities as well, Purdue, University of Texas at Arlington, um, not just Caltech, Stanford, MIT. Fifth, and this is important, Taiwan needs to become a trusted hub, a trusted vendor, a trusted tester, and a trusted conduit. For example, by leveraging the double threat of high quality data and comparatively open access to data on everything from clinical trials for pharmaceuticals to cybersecurity. And that has some resonance for biotech and pharma after COVID that I'll circle back to in about a minute. So if you compare Taiwan to say mainland China and the United States, firms in China are being given increasing access to data by the government in Beijing, but the data itself is of pretty low quality. In the United States, you do have firms that have poor access, but the data itself is of high quality. So Taiwan could, for example, distinguish itself from both China and the United States if it can marry those two pillars, essentially assuring both high quality and easy access for some non-sensitive public sector data sets. Sixth, Taiwan could follow international regulatory policy best practices. For instance, Taiwan has already joined the so-called uh, cross-border privacy rules system of APEC, the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. That's an international intergovernmental group that Taiwan actually does have membership in. And there's a cross-border privacy rules system for privacy and data transfer. So Taiwan could uphold its own privacy standards but potentially aim to seek an adequacy decision, which is an European Union determination that a party outside the EU offers an adequate level of data protection to meet tests under Europe's GDPR system. And then seventh, Taiwan could become more active in joining international discussions on technology standards, which despite all the focus on China's role in some of the intergovernmental groups, tends to play out more in private sector and engineering led groups. And so on working groups around things like cyber or the internet of things, uh, Taiwan and its firms and its universities and its private sector players could actively drive the dialogue. And there are a lot more very prescriptive ideas in that report that I mentioned. Okay, so the bottom line is this, and here, let me just flow into the US-Taiwan discussion and then I'm looking at the clock car, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop. When, when people talk about US-Taiwan economic relations, they tend to focus disproportionately on the issue of whether and how to conclude a bilateral trade agreement. And that makes sense, especially now that Taiwan has taken the decision to open its uh, pork and beef markets to US agribusiness exports. But long-term economic security doesn't lie in pork chops or in bone-in beef and ribeye steaks, much as Taiwan consumers may come to love these things. Um, it lies in innovation. And so by freeing up access to its very talented well-organized, creative, and educated population, Taiwan will in time become a more attractive overall investment innovation and testing hub for a greater variety of international partners. One example is in healthcare, and we can talk about that a little bit if you'd like in the, in the discussion. Now, let me just conclude by talking about the other piece of economic security, which is of course to get your international partnerships right. And since I'm American, I'll focus on the US-Taiwan agenda in particular. 
Um, here, I'm going to draw off some arguments I've made with my friend Barbara Weisel, who um, was, in fact, the principal negotiator, American negotiator of the TPP deal, which the U.S. eventually pulled out of. Now, the problem, to put it bluntly, is this. Despite the inauguration over the last couple of years of new dialogue forums between the U.S. and Taiwan, including one that came out of the State Department, in the last year of the Trump administration and some high profile political gestures. My view is that the economic component of the US-Taiwan economic relationship has really, really failed to match its promise. Now, one reason for that is that Taiwan's goals have been mismatched with US trade policy priorities. And to put that bluntly, Taiwan's principal economic objective and most urgent priority in its relations with Washington has been to secure a bilateral trade agreement or BTA. But that objective, if you followed this saga, despite bipartisan support in Washington, has run squarely into American frustration over some longstanding market access barriers in Taiwan. But also the American government trade team's reluctance to divert its focus from higher priority negotiations with other major economies. And that was certainly true of the US Trade Representative's office when Bob Lighthizer ran it in the last administration. Now it is true, as I said, that there's broad bipartisan political support in the United States, particularly in Congress for BTA. But even with the change of administration, um, BTA negotiations are not in my view, speaking realistically and just very bluntly, going to be in the offing anytime soon. Um, the Biden administration is gonna need many months to sort through its trade agenda. They're gonna need trade promotion authority, which is by the way, gonna expire on July 1st. And then they're gonna decide, need to decide whether and how to prioritize among prospective bilateral and plurilateral agreements, and then launch negotiations, if at all, with Taiwan. And so the danger, it seems to me, of having an approach that is essentially BTA or bust is that we could find ourselves 12 to 18 months into the Biden administration before Kathy Tai, the new US trade representative and American trade negotiators really begin weighing in earnest how to negotiate such an agreement with Taiwan. And so by focusing solely on a BTA and little else, we risk crowding out other productive ideas initiatives and policy innovations. A BTA is desirable, but it's not the only way to enhance US-Taiwan relations. So the immediate priority, and here I'll move to conclude, in my view and in Barbara's, which is why we wrote a piece together, should be what I would call an early harvest of quick wins. In other words, bilateral initiatives that can move very quickly with the possibility of rolling them into a plurilateral effort with third players, for example, in the APEC forum, later on if that becomes appropriate. So as a first step, the United States and Taiwan should hold a trade and investment framework agreement meeting. This is the so-called TIFA framework that the US and Taiwan maintain, but which it may surprise you to learn has not actually met since the Obama administration in 2016, which is just completely inexplicable to me. And so the U.S. Trade Representative's Office should hold a quick TIFA meeting with uh, counterparts from Taipei to signal the U.S. commitment 
to reestablishing regular engagement and to deepen trade relations. And by the way, this would also help to erase lingering questions in Taiwan surrounding American unwillingness to hold that meeting over the last few years. Now that dialogue could resolve some ongoing trade irritants, but it could also pursue some new initiatives. For example, an agreement on digital trade, coordination on the coronavirus pandemic and biomedical and vaccine supply chains, which will not be so easy because some of the quarantine and customs rules in Taiwan, an agreement on pharmaceuticals and medical devices drawn from the annexes in the Trans-Pacific Partnership that Barbara helped to negotiate. And then, as I said earlier, collaboration on international standard setting. The two sides could also use that forum to coordinate positions on WTO reform, Taiwan also being in the WTO, like in APEC, another intergovernmental group, and then to coordinate on other items on the APEC agenda. Now, um, I'd also argue for two parallel tracks, one led by the Commerce Department and then one led by the State Department. So you'd have a basically a three-track approach, USTR with the TIFA to do some of the things I just talked about, commerce and state. The commerce track would work on, well, it would work with private sector business associations to look at investment partnerships, infrastructure development, including through engineering, procurement and contracting partnerships, EPC partnerships in third countries. Many US multinational companies that operate in Taiwan use local EPC partners. And some of those Taiwan-based EPC partners are active in third countries, including in Southeast Asia. So there's no reason intrinsically why US multinationals couldn't work with the same Taiwan-based EPC partners in third settings as well. Places like Indonesia or Malaysia or other places where they're developing infrastructure. Um, the State Department track could pursue things like negotiation of an enhanced and more comprehensive science and technology agreement covering innovation in addition to the existing agreement on basic research. They could pursue a broader understanding on investment screening coordination. They could agree on specific ways the two sides would coordinate on renewable energy, which is a big priority for President Tsai Ing-wen's government, and on environmental sustainability. And they could also work on issues like women's economic empowerment. So I'll sum up and stop. It seems to me, given everything that I just said, that while Taiwan has faced strategic and economic obstacles for decades, those things are not new. It is also true that smart competition policies, economic heft, and a culture of innovation, which Taiwan has had in the past, are precisely the ingredients that can make it more secure. In other words, develop, as I said at the outset, the kind of economic security that matters, not just for now, but for 10 to 20 years from now. And so to remain secure for the long term, Taiwan needs to make its economy more robust, more innovative and integrate with the broader international environment. And above all, that means a concerted effort to adapt its economy to rapid industrial and technological change. And to the extent that the United States can help to do that, it should. And that's what I and so many others have been trying to help encourage the two sides to do. So why don't I stop there? It was about 30 and uh, happy to take it anywhere you want to take the discussion. Great. Thank you, Evan. That was fantastic. And, and you came in right on time. So I commend you for that. Um, 
I want to start out with a question that actually goes back to my first days at Stanford in the program manager role a long time ago. And that has to do with Taiwan's uh, long-term uh, economic development strategy. Um, at that point in time, the president of Taiwan was Ma Yingzhou of the KMT. Uh, and the uh, the voice or the language that we got from uh, the Ma Yingzhou administration was that their economic strategy was integration with China. We would go through China to the world. Uh, and uh, Taiwan has comparative advantages in the uh, the effort to invest in China, to develop partnerships in China, and to um, to innovate with Chinese partners. And uh, so it makes perfect sense from Ma's perspective to focus on a, a kind of a China-focused strategy uh, for development over the long run. Of course, now we have a DPP president in office. Uh, since 2016, they've taken a very different view of the opportunities versus the uh, threats or challenges that the PRC poses. Uh, they're much more suspicious of greater economic integration with the mainland. And so... Um, you didn't really touch on kind of the, the domestic political dynamics in Taiwan over this issue, but I wonder if you if you think that uh, the Ma era strategy is is gone for good. If it's if it's dead, if uh, nobody should even consider uh, trying to deepen integration with the PRC, or if that is uh, something that could still be a potential benefit to Taiwan if it's managed carefully. Yeah, I think to be candid about it, the political environment in Taiwan has changed a lot on this in the last few years. And I think it's just a fact of life that we need to acknowledge that what was once seen largely as a commercial public good is increasingly seen as a potential source of vulnerability. And that's not just a function of the way you described it, which was a change of government from one party to another. I think there are broad segments of the Taiwan public that actually view greater integration as a point of not just commercial vulnerability, but long-term strategic vulnerability for Taiwan. Um, now, having said that, we should also point out that some of that vulnerability goes in both directions. Um, it is not just that uh, Taiwan benefits from exporting a lot of uh, ICT products to China and from investment in China, mainland China, uh, but also that if you look at the import data, China still imports quite a bit including uh, ICT components and other products from Taiwan. So some of China's growth is premised on uh, integration. And so there's some two-way dependency there as well. Now, I don't personally think, uh, given the need for Taiwan's economy to grow and the way some of those linkages have evolved over time, that there's a long-term scenario for productive economic growth that doesn't include some integration. It's not possible to rewind the clock wholesale. And this really gets to the debate about, about uh, so-called decoupling. I mean, is there decoupling happening for Taiwan? Yes. Um, but I, I wouldn't call it just decoupling. I, I think of it more as uh, resilience and diversification to become less dependent on single points of failure, yeah. uh, single capital sources, single markets, single uh, single places where to have a disproportionate share of export dependence or import dependence and so on. So if you look at capital flows, if you look at exports to Japan, to the United States and others, it is true that Taiwan is diversifying, but over the long term, I can't see wholesale deintegration between the two. And that gets to a broader kind of issue of decoupling. I've, I've always hated the term decoupling 
because um, if you think about it, whether it's the U.S.-China context or the Taiwan mainland China context, um, the U.S. and, you know, a couple can get divorced, but the United States and China, for example, are not a couple because uh, other places are going to get a vote on the outcome. And when other places get a vote, you can't just divorce wholesale. So I prefer the term deintegration and diversification. And I think essentially that's what we're going to see. We're going to see some sectoral deintegration. We're going to see a lot more diversification. We'll see a pretty robust strategic and um, political debate about points of vulnerability. But you'll still see Taiwan firms investing. Um, you may see the character of that investment change. And you'll still see quite a bit of integration in some sectors. Or else there'll be some... Uh, some issues that Taiwan firms would have to confront in terms of growth strategy, profitability, and so on, that I think they're not prepared to confront. Um, I want to go to uh, our other panelist here, Larry Diamond. Uh, I do have a question that builds on on yours. So, Evan, you know, during the 70s, 80s, 90s, Taiwan just had this reputation for remarkably good uh developmental policy making uh, and kind of, uh, you know, advancing this, the Taiwan miracle, uh, so to speak. Some of the things you say that need to be done are things that are, you know, beyond Taiwan's own ability to do alone. But some of them presumably are, you know, like reshaping the long-term STEM talent base are, are things that presumably lie pretty much within the scope of Taiwan's own policymaking. Uh, and um, maybe a little bit, you know, steering the hardware software integration that you spoke about as well. So, you know, kind of to build on what Karis was asking about the political economy, what are, what are the obstacles or hindrances here to Taiwan moving in this direction? Is it that policymaking hasn't become as kind of uh, high-end and forward-leaning as it once was? Is it that Taiwan is a very kind of liberal post-industrial society, can't be shaped and steered uh, in quite the way uh, the scientific and technical base did before? Uh, I mean, what do you what do you assess to be the challenges to policy moving in some of the directions that Taiwan itself, you know, could move if it chose to? Yeah, you know, I think, to, I mean, to be fair, there's a pretty robust debate about all of these things in Taiwan today. And whether it's, you know, folks like Audrey Tung, the digital minister, or it's Jason Xu from the other side of the spectrum, um, there's a pretty robust debate about these things. So that's the good news. And in fact, when I wrote that report that Karis mentioned, it got a fantastic reception in Taiwan um, because a, a lot of people said, this is great. I mean, this is the kind of thing that we, we've been talking about, but you came at it from a slightly different angle. And these are the things that we need to be talking about with international partners too. And I think that's really part of what the challenge is. Taiwan's not alone in that. Um, as I said, I think, the scope and scale and velocity of technological change, industrial change, 
is happening so fast that Taiwan, like many other economies, is facing the need to be adaptive as well as innovative. Um, and particularly when you have an innovation sector that's dominated by one world-class industry, where you're not just the market leader, but you're the market leader to the nth degree, um, it becomes hard to make those kinds of investments. And I mean, I think if you talk to firms that are that have tried to crack through this, that are outside the traditional legacy industries like semiconductors, they have trouble sourcing talent because a lot of the talent incentives have been to go into those, to continue to go into those legacy sectors. And I think that's reflected, for example, in some of the educational data that I talked about. That's one conceivable explanation for it. I think the challenges are well understood by policymakers now, but I think the execution is hard. To put that a little differently, it's an it's it's not an intellectual problem; it's a political and competitiveness problem, and because every choice involves trade-offs. Um, one issue, as I said, is internationalization. Taiwan, to me, just has an economy that is, you know, ironically, given the reputation, that is still very domestically focused in the startup sector. Um, a lot of the sectors, this PwC survey I mentioned is worth taking a look at, because if you look at where the startup sector growth is, it's actually mostly in the consumer sector. It's not in technology <laughs> industries. And a lot of the new, a lot of the first time founders of companies turned out to be people with backgrounds in marketing and in business, not in technology focused sectors. So the people starting companies and the kinds of companies that are emerging, I'm not talking about big companies, I'm talking about startup companies, tend to be consumer, business operations, B2B, and then they're very domestically focused. So it's a technology problem, but it's an internationalization problem. And that's why I mentioned the scale of the market. Second, Taiwan's not the only place trying to make this challenge, to meet these challenges. So there's a competitive, there's a competitiveness problem. If you're competing for foreign investment, you have to make yourself attractive. And that's not just about government policy, but it is partly about government policy. I'll give you an example. Um, biotech and pharmaceuticals. There are a lot of the major multinational pharmaceutical players that are looking to put new hubs in the Asia Pacific region. Where are those gonna go? Could be China, could be Korea, could be Taiwan, could be somewhere else in Southeast Asia. Taiwan needs to make a play for that. Part of that is good healthcare data. Part of it is good biomedical best practices. But part of that is to marry those things to being an attractive investment destination. And I think that's the kind of thing that the big pharma companies are talking to Taiwan regulators about. Um, but they, you know, Taiwan has competition. There are other places that could go. Um, and then finally, as I said, there's the question of international partnerships. And that's where the U.S. and Taiwan could work on that a little bit together. And that's not just a public sector endeavor. And that's why I said a BTA is not the answer. Government to government negotiations are not the whole answer. Those are things that private sector players, educational leaders, and government people need to really think about together. But I think the trajectory of policy in Taiwan is pretty good. But um, it's not an intellectual problem. It's a, it's, a, it's a competition and a political one. I want to pull on a couple of questions that have come through the chat box. And I, uh, for those watching live, I do invite you to submit additional questions through the Q&A button. Um, and that is uh, to do with uh, Taiwan's uh, labor issues. So Taiwan, you talked a lot about uh, the, the uh, need for an innovation economy to have kind of a flexible workforce. Um, but uh, Taiwan actually recorded a population decline for the first time this past year. Uh, their uh, birth rates are extremely low. They're likely to face a, a rapidly aging population in the near future. And so an obvious way to mitigate that is to import some of the labor they'll need in the future. 
Um, and Taiwan does have some comparative advantages over competitors in this realm. It's, it's I would argue, a bit more open to immigration than uh, Japan or South Korea is. Uh, and uh, it also has better quality of life than a lot of places in the PRC. It's certainly uh, generally an easier place just to, to kind of go about your day. And so um, the problems that I see with Taiwan trying to import labor uh, are that salaries are pretty low for engineers, especially, uh, and that uh, there, there, there's an effort in Taiwan to try to increase the use of English as a potentially a, a second national language, even. Uh, but there's a there's an English issue as well. And so, do you see those as major hindrances to Taiwan's long-term economic growth strategy? Or yeah, yeah, you know, I get that question a lot. I gave a similar talk to a group in Taiwan, and I got a question about not just labor flexibility but wage rates. Yeah, I'm not an economist, and I'm certainly not a labor economist. I'm not I'm not the right person to dig in on that. But I do think it's not just a question of importing labor to stay, but of as I said, brain circulation and partnerships that result. And that's why if you go back to the seven recommendations that I pulled out of the 90 or so that are in some of my writing, two of them focused on, on visa and entry requirements or on mm -hmm. making it easier for digital entrepreneurs to come and uh, invest and, and, and launch startups locally. So I think basically easing work and visa entry requirements, including not just, as I said, for big MNCs, but for international startups that might want to put a hub locally, uh, but also things like the GPAS Asia, which is, is, is a digital entrepreneur card, that, uh, that at least would create a incentives and opportunities for a more circular labor market at the higher, more knowledge intensive. So everybody about Taiwan's gold card visa program. Every, I should say everybody faces this problem. I mean, labor is very inflexible. Look at Indian labor, very inflexible. Um, lots of labor reforms yeah. underway in India. So all of these places. Sorry, you were asking about gold right. card. Um, that's right. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, to ask about the gold card, the employment gold card uh, program in Taiwan. Do you think that is an effective way to address the need to import more uh, high skilled labor? Uh, do you think it's been effective over the last year? Haven't haven't dug into it. Okay. A level of granularity that would allow me to give you a confident answer. So okay. gonna, I'll punt that. Okay. One. Punt on that. All right. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about uh, pork. <laughs> and <laughs> um, so one of the big issues, as you know, in Taiwan is that there's a, a referendum coming up over uh, whether to overturn the Tsai Ing-wen's reform of restrictions on pork imported from anywhere in the rest of the world that has been fed the additive rectopamine. And uh, given current public polling surveys, uh, it suggests that referendum is going to pass, so that will overturn uh, the Tsai Ing-wen's government's efforts to uh, resolve that issue, which was a major sticking point in U.S.-Taiwan trade relations. And uh, so uh, two questions here. What do you think that would do to uh, U.S.-Taiwan negotiations if there is a, a you know, a TIFA talk about things? Uh, would that have much effect at all? Uh, and second, why does USTR care so much about pork when, as you said, it's kind of a legacy issue? It's not uh, really related to Taiwan's innovation economy at all. Well, it's not a legacy issue for farmers and ranchers in the United States. It's an active issue. And if you look at kind of uh, exports as a percentage of agribusiness revenue, I mean, the reason the Trump tariffs and then the counter tariffs 
from China bit so hard for a lot of farmers and ranchers was precisely because uh, China was such a fastest growing was such a fast growing market for those products, commodities, but also but also uh, things like seed strains, for example. China alone is something like 54% of global pork consumption. So, so it's been a huge hit that pork farmers have taken. So if you're a hog farmer in the United States, opening up new markets and not just relying on government subsidies is important. And Asia is where the growth has been. Um, uh, East Asian economies consume a lot of pork. They also increasingly consume a lot of beef. So these things matter not just to agribusiness lobbies, but to the real world livelihoods of American uh, farmers and ranchers. That's why USTR cares. And that's frankly why those who make American trade policy or care about it generally ought to care. For that reason, I mean, my short answer is that it would be hard for me to imagine uh, a bilateral trade agreement between the United States and Taiwan with markets to American agribusiness products closed. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why this has been an issue for a long time. And I think that's why President Tsai made the bold decision uh, to move on that, notwithstanding surveys that have consistently shown uh, a few years ago it was in the 70 percent range. Now it's in the 60 percent range that Taiwan consumers simply wouldn't touch uh, rectopamine uh, touched pork and beef products. Um, but of course, Taiwan consumers have the opportunity to make the choice if the, the, if the products come in as long as they're labeled. So it seems to me that the administration in Taiwan had kind of found a happy mean here, which was to lift the restrictions in order, I think clearly to try to facilitate a BTA negotiation negotiation with the United States, but then also to, to set domestic labeling, safety, and sanitary standards in a way that would either give Taiwan consumers the confidence in the safety of the product or else allow them to make a market-based decision to opt out and buy something else. So that was, I thought, kind of a happy meme. Um, but as you said, it's politically fraught. The irony, of course, well, there are two ironies. So one irony is that the two parties in Taiwan have kind of switched positions on this. I remember when the Ma Ying-jeou administration was talking about letting in, in that case, it was beef, not pork, but beef from the United States that had rectopamine residues in it. And it was the Democratic Progressive Party that was opposed. They've kind of reversed positions now with the KMT sponsoring this referendum. And then second, referendums, of course, have become a hot potato in, in Taiwan. There is This is one of at least four referendums that look like they're going to be on the ballot for August, um, including one about holding referendum referendums themselves and the mechanics of holding referendums. And then there's one on a on a liquefied natural gas terminal and, and, and so on. Um, I think um, I think the question for Taiwan is how to be market friendly. In other words, how do you open up to imports, but uh, basically give consumers choice and set standards? Um, and so that's where I think the government, to its credit, was headed. Uh, but you're right, as a practical political matter, given what the surveys show about consumer preferences, that may be overturned and that will, I think, make it harder to negotiate a BTA. That's unfortunate. And so as someone who thinks a BTA is a pretty good idea, although, as I said, shouldn't be the only idea, it would be good if the United States could find ways to um, uh, signal what's over the horizon to Taiwan in terms of a prospective negotiation. Um, it might have some political resonance in Taiwan with ordinary people. Great. Yeah. Um, if I could just follow up briefly on that. So uh, my understanding is that much of the U.S. pork industry actually is removing rectopamine from their feed products now. Sure. 
precisely to get into the China market because China itself maintains a ban on rectopamine fed pork. And yes. so could this issue disappear, do you think, in the, in the next couple of years, simply because most of the U.S. industry is already making the shift? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, as you said, it was very focused on China because of the scope and scale of the China market. Right. Um, one of the largest hog producers in the United States, Smithfield, was actually purchased by a Chinese private company called Shuanghui a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, there was a big debate about that in the United States. There were people like Senator Debbie, Debbie Stout out of Michigan who argued that this you know, ought to be screened as a national security risk around investment. I personally don't think of pork chops as national security. <laughs> if you look at Smithfield pork exports to China, they went up uh, pretty exponentially after that purchase. Um, and if you've been in the airport in Beijing anytime in the last three years, you will have seen advertisement for Smithfield sausages, Smithfield ham. Uh, pork products are very popular from Smithfield, but from other American uh, hog producers. So I think what China had going for it was scale, essentially, and Taiwan does not have that going for it. And so from the standpoint of a trade negotiator, um, it's harder to see how you just accommodate that out of the box. And I think for hog producers, that were trying to basically de their supply chain for China in particular. I'm not sure how those supply chain relationships in terms of exports specifically to Taiwan work. There's basically four countries that are most global pork consumption. It's China, Mexico, Japan, and South Korea. Taiwan's, you know, tiny in that. And so I think that's the challenge is you need to de your supply chain for, for, for multiple markets as opposed to just focused on one as part of your growth strategy. And not being a hog farmer myself, I'm not quite sure how that, uh, how that, how that works or how, much, how important Taiwan is in terms of market share for some of those companies. But a lot of them have lost opportunity in China now because of counter tariffs and counter tariffs. And it's really bitten hard. Um, so we've got just a couple minutes here before we have to wrap up. And I, I did want to ask, uh, you focused mostly in your talk on, on manufacturing. And I wondered if there are opportunities for Taiwan to, to innovate within services. Um, and in particular, you mentioned the healthcare industry. And I wonder if Taiwan does have a pretty well-regarded healthcare system. Um, there's, you know, they do a pretty good job on cost containment as well as getting universal coverage. Uh, so I wonder if there are any lessons or any kind of industry best practices that could uh, be exported with a partner to some other part of the world, or if there are uh, opportunities in biotech, biomedicine, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think the opportunity is to leverage, as I said, high quality data in order to be a hub for clinical trials for medicines that have not yet been brought to market, but could be. And so... You know, open data and high quality data is a potential comparative advantage for Taiwan. Yeah. You look at how Taiwan battled COVID. Um, data was a big part of the story. Essentially, what they did was they integrated the national immigration database for travelers with the national healthcare and hospital database in order to aid with contact tracing and quarantine. Right. Um, I just did a panel for Carnegie about a week ago on uh not just the Taiwan story, but best practices and sometimes not so best practices and what could be learned, not so much from COVID, but for future pandemics. And um, data is a big part of the story. You can't imagine the kind of contact tracing that took place in Taiwan happening here in the United States, for example. I mean, the political outcry would be enormous. It's just a different kind of social trust, political trust, and so on. So I think the play is really a data play for Taiwan. And the goal should be not just to attract investment. It's funny, when I did this panel 
that Taiwan-based panelists, in, who include some leading public health specialists in Taiwan, were really focused on vaccine manufacturing. <laughs> so they said, oh, you know, mRNA vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna. One issue, obviously, is the intellectual property, and that's been in the headlines in the last 24 hours um, because of the announcement out of the US trade representative. But the real issue there is scaling manufacturing capacity around the world, not just not just the knowledge around a vaccine, but to actually do it. So Peter Hotez in Texas and other people have pointed out that there are entire regions of the world, the Middle East, Asia, um, uh, Africa, that just simply don't have the ability to manufacture that kind of vaccine technology. So in China, for example, or in India through the Serum Institute, you can do adenovirus vector vaccines, but not mRNA vaccines. So one of my Taiwan-based panelists made a play for this and said, oh, you know, the United States should be helping Taiwan develop mRNA vaccine manufacturing capacity. Um, I'm not sure that's really where the play is gonna be. I think the play is really for clinical trials um, using, as I said, the data and the high quality healthcare system to try to attract some of those. Um, and I do think there's interest in some, in some of the pharma companies, the Merck's, the AstraZeneca's, the, you know, the, the, uh, the Johnson Johnson's of the world in looking for new hubs for R&D, but also for places to conduct clinical activity. And so Taiwan's in, a, in the mix on that, but that comes back to Larry's point about how do you get the policies right? And how do you get the investment uh, environment right? And how do you deal also with things like phytosanitary, quarantine, customs regulations. Um, I've heard from some people that even importing vaccines can be difficult in Taiwan because they, they they run into some of the quarantine rules, which yeah. may not affect AstraZeneca, which is mainly what's being used in Taiwan now, but could affect, for example, some of the mRNA technologies or next generation technologies. So that's that's where I think the opportunity is. It's, it's the data, the data play. Okay, great. Uh, well, that's all the time we have. That was terrific, a tour de force really. Uh, I want to thank Evan again for appearing with us today, and I hope next time we can actually have him in person on the farm. Uh, and uh, I do want to call your attention, if, you've, if you're still with us, um, he does have two recent pieces out, one deepening the U.S.-Taiwan economic partnership with Barbara Wiseau, and the other ensuring Taiwan's innovation future. That's a big report that came out at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, so thanks again, Evan. It's been a delight, and I hope we can have you again uh, in person soon. <laughs>